Please take your Bibles if you would. God's very holy, very powerful, absolutely perfect and pertinent to our lives word. And turn in them, if you would, to the book of Colossians. What grace God has given us for us to be able to read this and study it and comprehend it. What a revelation of Jesus Christ this letter has. What glories for us to behold. And I would just remind you here that we exist as a church based upon what Colossians 1.28 says, that we want to, in everything, proclaim Christ through warnings, through teaching, with all the wisdom of the Scriptures, in order that, at the end of this whole process, we may present everyone mature in Christ. And we do that proclaiming of Christ each time we gather. Not just through this preaching, but also through our singing, through our praying, through all the other means by which we teach, that this is the most incredible and amazing one who has done incredible and amazing things for us. We want to hold each jewel of Jesus Christ up before our eyes, let the light glisten on it, be awed by it, be moved by the profound ways in which it affects us so that our hearts turn ever more away from ourselves, our life, our, our world, here, lesser things, and ever more toward the most glorious thing and being, the Lord Jesus Christ in all his splendor. Quote we've uh, highlighted a number of times, but just a reminder that almost every thought we ever have about Jesus is too small too limited, too frail, too weak, too inadequate. But, as Sam Storms reminds us, we love the scriptures because they lead us to Christ. He is our exceeding great reward. So again, as I'm saying each Sunday in Colossians, let chapter 3, verse 16, the command, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it just keep abiding, keep soaking in it. Let it have more and more control of you such that it then starts to come out and you teach and admonish and encourage and exhort each other as we all head toward heaven as our home. So just a reminder, keeping the, the English teacher here, trying to keep our big thoughts going and where are we in the middle of the forest of Colossians or as we're entering into the middle of it. So we basically, roughly, chapter one is Christ's preeminence declared Chapter 2, roughly, is Christ's preeminence defended. And chapter 3, roughly, with a little bit of 4, Christ's preeminence demonstrated. Those are our three big thoughts. And now within this first big thought of declaring his preeminence, we've worked our way through the first 12 verses of how it's declared in the gospel message. And now we're going to look particularly at how it's expressed in redemption. So last week, we walked through a loaded, packed prayer that should be a continuous and ongoing prayer for us, for ourselves, for each other, for our church, for all who follow Christ, that will be filled with the knowledge of his will, with his spiritual wisdom and understanding, that will walk in a way that's worthy of that great glory, that will be pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, always increasing and growing in our knowledge of God, never letting it grow stale. Or as Dane Ortland puts it, the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of wrong understandings of God. 
So part of the way we're growing in the knowledge of God is to take away those thoughts of him that are not right, accurate, true, and worthy of him, and we continue to seek to understand him better. All of that strengthening with power and his glorious might so that we will, day after day, year after year, faithfully to the end of our lives, have endurance and patience and joy. All of that leading to giving thanks. Some think Paul's prayer ends here, like that's the closing. Thank you, Lord. Amen. There's just no amen. Some think, I would say probably more, see it as the psalm now turning. Once he says the Father, it triggers this eruption of praise in Paul that really is giving us a foundation for all that's just been prayed. So here's the way Tony Reinke puts it. Paul breaks into glorious God-centered theology to undergird all these weighty callings on our life. So we're going to look at four descriptors, four lines, four works of the Father and the Son that are absolutely incredible in their work of salvation. We very often simply say, I got saved, or he or she got saved, which is an accurate statement. Perhaps more fitting would be, God saved me. But that word saved, or the thought of salvation, is so robust. It is so loaded, loaded with truths about what Christ has done. We're going to look at just four. Four of dozens upon dozens upon dozens that, I hope, will lead us to tremendous worship. We see past grace we see present grace, all kinds of it, and we see future grace in here as well. Interestingly, before we dive into the details of this, it, I think it's interesting to look. Paul's testimony, when he's giving it in Acts 26 to uh, Felix and Agrippa, says this. But notice how much, if you go to the next slide, notice how much Paul's commission from God Sounds like what he's writing here in Colossians. God, Christ commissioned him on that day that he revealed himself and said, I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light. Here we see delivered from and transferred to. From the power of Satan to God, the domain, domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. That they may receive forgiveness of sins, which is the last line of Colossians and the redemption there. And then I think there's even a hint to the saints here that's in verse 12. A place among, and here's another way you can say saints, those who are sanctified by faith in me. It's also intriguing how much this language in Colossians 1, 12 to 14 is in the Exodus account. Here's just one example from Exodus 6, 6. But as you think about the whole account, it is God taking a huge group of people redeeming them out of bondage and slavery in a miraculous way, moving them from a nation with incredible darkness in it, transferring them across the wilderness to a place, and in that process is all the shedding of the blood for the forgiveness of sin until they are ultimately delivered in the promised land where each of the saints received an allotment an inheritance from the Lord, a gift by which they then could live. So lots of cool parallels going on in here. I'll show you a few more toward the end if we have time uh, 
at other places in Colossians and the scripture as well. But just to tie into this Exodus theme here, a couple of thoughts. First of all, from Beale. As children of the king, we are together undergoing an exodus like Israel's out of Egypt, but on an escalated scale, beginning spiritually in this age and consummated with physical resurrection. And then Scott McKnight, the words uh, Paul is using, inheritance, holy people, kingdom, are terms used for Israel, for the exodus, and for God's election of Israel. But Paul knows that in the new age, God is doing a work in a new exodus, expanding Israel to include Gentiles, and he is doing so in such a way that all humans are now on the level with Israel in the plan of God, mind you, not by lowering Israel's level, but by elevating Gentiles, pagan, filthy Gentiles like you and me, to Israel's level. So let's dig into this, and let's start by asking God for his help. But again, as we so often pray, we just want to acknowledge our inadequacies as we come to your holy truth and pray that you will graciously, mercifully open our eyes to see Christ more clearly and you and your work. Open our minds to comprehend, grasp these, understand this revelation in a way that transforms our thinking. Please open our hearts which are still so sinful despite the phenomenal work you've done in them in making us a new creation so that we will believe even more and our affections for Christ will grow. Open our mouths to speak of these truths as we, after we have heard them, as they are brewing within us. May they come out of our mouths, whether it's as we parent our children, as we meet with a friend, or perhaps as another way in which we can share the gospel with someone who doesn't, hasn't yet experienced this awesome work. And finally, Lord, would you open our hands and feet to be obedient, to live out in accordance with your will all that this entails and means. And we ask this as your humble people, thanking you for this grace. Amen. So, verse 12, which is uh, the people who put verse numbers in, seemed kind of random here. Seems to just interrupt this thought or sentence. But we've, in one way, perhaps finished all of walking all these ways with joy, thanking the Father, or we're thanking the Father for these four things that are now going to be laid out. And the first line is loaded with big thoughts, big ideas, big workings. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. First of all, before we get into the details, the action of what he's done, let's just note how he, had, how he is identified as the Father. That he positions all he saves, all that he takes through that he's going to talk about out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom, uh, forgiving their sins, all of those are given this amazing, incredible privilege to know him as Father. J.I. Packer says, you can sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. So let's even not take that title, that blessed privilege we have of knowing him in this way for granted. Secondly, our true and eternal father has qualified us. 
uh, a unique description, perhaps not one of our more common ones about what salvation entails, but it's taking someone who, and I'm going to use the words of Sam Storms here, not merely is unqualified, but profoundly disqualified, and authorizing them, making them fit, making them sufficient for something that is way above and beyond them. Because of sin, no one, none of us, can come anywhere close to qualifying for the inheritance on our own. God alone provides that. He does it freely. He does it all instantaneously, turning a debtor, a condemned debtor deserving only wrath and punishment, to become an heir of a fortune that is beyond imaginable glory. Because he loves to. He loves to give and give and to qualify those who will come to his son for salvation. Third, our eternal and true forever father qualifies us to share in the inheritance. Massive concept here. We're just going to barely scrape the surface, touch the tip of the iceberg on it, but let your mind just well within this inheritance concept. In a one-word summary, we would just say life with God is our inheritance. Um, but I think there's an allusion here even to the heavenly aspect, the eternal place. So part of our inheritance is what Jesus told the disciples on the night that he went to the cross in John 14, 3, that I'm going, after I leave this earth, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I will come again for you to give you that inheritance. It's all that God has promised. All the riches of Christ. None of them withheld. When we get the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, he lavishes freely on all of us. We'll see this inheritance again in chapter 3 in a very different context. But Peter captures the description as he opens his letter, even earlier than Paul refers to it here in the letter to the Colossians, that it's God's mercy that causes us to be born again, that birth is into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and here's what that resurrection is to, to an inheritance. And then Peter just breaks into describing that inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, unfading. You think of all the way our inheritances work, all the way our economy is working, all the way life works here, and all of this, Peter says, none of that can touch the inheritance that's coming, and all of it's being kept in heaven for you, and in the meantime, God will strengthen you and protect you until that day that it's revealed in the end. And that's why Paul prays so passionately in Ephesians 1 that we would come to really know and grasp and picture and, and think often about the riches of the glory of his inheritance. And here's the same language in the saints. And ponder sharing in the inheritance. Like we get an equal part. There's not a favoritism of God. There aren't favorite children. And oh, you got in by the skin of your teeth. Here, a few little pennies for you. We all share equally in that inheritance and that allotment. It's the language, again, that, that is used when Israel entered the promised land, but also by Paul and others afterward to speak of what we receive in the new covenant. 
So Galatians is one place that we can go to show us a little bit. There's a lot more than what shows up on the screen here. But in Galatians, Paul spells out, God has Paul spell out, that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then he starts to unpack that a little bit later down in verses 26 to 29. In Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. So sons of Abraham, sons of God. As many of you as baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And here's the inheritance, heirs according to promise. And uh, in Galatians 4, Paul will talk about that even more. But one other place that I think is an encouraging place to look is Psalm 16. And for sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but there's beautiful and precious lines. You'll see in verse 3, if you're looking at Psalm 16, a reference to the saints and how they are a delight to the psalmist. But down in verses 5 and 6, he says this, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. That's my inheritance. You hold it for each one of us. You're holding it until you, we come to you and we'll receive it from your right hand as the last line of the psalm we'll talk about. And then he just describes it to say the lines, the allotment, the chosen portion that God has given me, they've fallen in pleasant places. And then he summarizes it. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He goes on then in the psalm to speak of some other convictions that that leads to. And then he comes back to the promise that God will not abandon our souls to the grave, to Sheol, to the place of the dead, even as we just sang, that there's a day when we will all be raised to new life. And so he finishes out the psalm with, in your presence, which is both now in spirit, but ultimately when we're face to face, there is nothing but fullness of joy. And at your right hand, you just see God holding out his precious hand to us, giving us pleasures evermore. So our inheritance ultimately is God himself. Unless we get caught up in the other gifts, John Piper challenges us with this very long question. If you could have heaven with no sickness with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities or fun you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you've ever seen, all the physical pleasures you've ever experienced, no human conflict, no natural disasters, would you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Hopefully that's a strong no. Not without Jesus. Not without the Father. Nathan Knight, who recently planted a church, said this, Call to mind the great treasure of heaven. Jesus says the pure in heart shall see God. We're told by John that we shall see him as he is. Not as he was, but as he is. It will be the same Jesus that suffered and bled, but we will see him in the effulgence of his infinite glory. Gone will be the veil that led him to hunger, thirst, suffer, and moan, rejected by men. Present will be the Jesus who, through these sufferings, 
has triumphed and taken on a new body, dripping with kingly power, beauty, and love. This is the Jesus awaiting us in the splendor of his kingdom. And we could say in the splendor of his inheritance. His pre presence will be our home. Back to Colossians 1.12. We're qualified for an inheritance with the saints or as a saint in light. This is God's way of saying and describing that he has made us worthy. Our qualification has set us apart from sin, set us apart from darkness, which we're going to focus on in just a moment. But nobody earns the status of sainthood. It's graced by God, again, by his gracious giving. Um, and no one gets the lion's share. Everyone gets the lamb's share of the inheritance that is coming to the saints. And finally, light, very, very quickly, just a reminder, God himself is light, a way of speaking of his purity, his radiance, his holiness, his glory. And we now are called often in scripture, these are just two examples of how we are to walk as children of light and walk in that light. In other words, walk as if you are saints, living for an inheritance that is going to be unimaginable. Stop toying with the things of this earth. Saints are positionally light because they're in Christ, who's the light of the world. But saints are also practically, in everyday sense, identifiable because they walk in light. Next line. How do we get such blessing and light? First of all, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. This domain is not so much a physical domain, though there are aspects of that, but a spiritual realm devoid of holy light of God. Most of all, the domain of darkness lies within us and our own sin against God. So in one word, the domain of darkness is sin, all of its evil manifestations and consequences and outworkings. It's evil, it's wickedness. Those are the scripture's terms. It's a world permeated by death of spirit, soul, and body. A world of disease, depression, alienation, shattered relationships, Colossians 1.20, if you peek your eyes ahead a few verses, probably take us a month to get there. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Ephesians 4, if you leaf back, a litany of characteristics, mental futility, darkened understanding, ignorance, hardness of heart, callousness, alienation from the life of God, sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, corrupted with all kinds of deceitful desires. We could read Romans 1. It would be loaded with even more descriptors of all of that. It's a life devoid of God's nature and his goodness and his blessing. It is, as Scott McKnight puts it, a deep, cosmic, demonic, personal reality capturing structures and society and people in this world systemically to thwart the good plan of God. John MacArthur, we're Christless, stateless, covenantless, covenantless, hopeless, godless. The only thing we're qualified to receive is his wrath. 
and all who dwell in the domain of darkness do so not only in this life, where it's perhaps not as vivid to them, but do so for all of eternity. For as a hell is a place of endless darkness and suffering and anguish and hate and weeping and gnashing of teeth and misery. The domain of darkness thought when it marshaled its greatest assault against God by attacking his son while in a human body to have him betrayed, arrested, tried, rejected, and ultimately killed in the most gruesome way. Thought they had won. But we find out they had only bruised the heel of Christ, for he arose from the dead, victorious, conquering all of them. If you leaf ahead in Colossians to chapter 2, verse 15, you'll see a cool description how he disarmed, disabled, rendered powerless the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So all of this is describing how he has delivered, redeemed, freed, broken the chains of bondage and, and imprisonment that the domain of darkness holds every human in. And though the domain of darkness will continue to rage against Christ and rage against all those he sets free, the ultimate victory has been achieved and there is no question of ever possibly being taken back into that. We'll remind ourselves of that in Romans 8 in just a moment. Brief note, side note here, to those of you, whether you're young or old, who were raised in a very truly Christian home. We often do not see the domain of darkness and its evil the way that everybody else that's lived in it and been fully exposed to it and been wounded by it does. And often that reduces our appreciation for what an incredible deliverance that is. But nobody, nobody gets in to heaven because they were close to the light in their home because they didn't see the darkness for as bad as it was. Every one of us has to have a miraculous, phenomenal deliverance from the domain of darkness, no matter how light it looks to everybody else. We desperately need it, and only God can accomplish it. And he has for those who trust in his son. Third, pressing on. He's transferred us. So he didn't just deliver us out of the domain of darkness and leave us in this no space. He, that deliverance is a transferring. It's ultimately a shift over into an entirely different, dramatically different kingdom. And now he describes it as a kingdom of his beloved son. This is the same language. You might have already thought of that. Back a slide if you would. This is the same language as the voice from heaven, God's voice on the day that Jesus was baptized and at the transfiguration, you are my, back a slide if you can. Maybe you can't, that's fine. Uh, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That's when Jesus was inaugurating, beginning, establishing the kingdom of God. If you remember in our study of Mark, verse 15 of chapter one, Jesus announced the time is fulfilled 
The kingdom is at hand. God has begun to bring it through Christ coming to earth. And the response he calls for then and now is repent and believe in the gospel. So this is a picture of this great king, in this case, King Jesus, barging, charging into enemy territory, taking, snatching, releasing all those held captive by a despot, deporting them then over into his country or his kingdom, all in a spiritual realm at this point. But it's not just a king, a kingdom with a different cruel ruler or perhaps less cruelty, less darkness, less of the suffering and pain. It's a kingdom, God is telling us by the way he identifies his son, that it's a kingdom that's built upon and filled with and overflowing with the love of God, the love of the Father and the love of the Son for those that they are transferring. So they're not just doing it as a duty, rescuing somebody who needs to be rescued and they're pretty emotionalist in it and they don't even know who it is. They are diving into the domain of darkness and transferring out those that they choose to then shower their love upon. And that kingdom, that rescue has begun. It's now invisible to our eyes, but the universal church All of the saints, all of those who have been redeemed out of that transferred into the kingdom, the church we might summarize, all have Jesus as king now. He is our Lord that we answer to, ruling and reigning over us with his law, his word, and his commands. But one day it will become physical kingdom on earth as well. First of all, when Christ visibly returns and sets up his rule for a millennia, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 24 tells us, then comes the end when he delivers that kingdom to God the Father. So you can see the beautiful working of Father and Son in our salvation. After destroying every rule, every authority and power, there isn't one left to oppose it. And then the prayer we so often have prayed will be truer than true. Thy kingdom come. And it'll be here, and it'll be perfect, and it'll be an incredible inheritance. And what makes us so sure and secure in that now are the promises of Romans 8. Now we can go to that next slide. And perhaps your minds already went to this. Is there anything, is the question, is there anything that can separate us from the love of Christ, of Jesus our King? And then there's a whole litany of things that Paul suggests as possibilities, things that often have wrecked love, destroyed it, torn people who love each other apart from them. And Paul affirms, first of all, in verse 37, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him. And notice again, who loved us. Love is just woven in throughout this. And then back, here's some other possibilities. And then he's just affirming, no, none of these things will be able to separate us from the kingdom of the beloved son and the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, our King. Now that Jesus has been introduced in Colossians 1, Paul is going to bring him to center stage and through verse 20, he will talk about no one else until you see the you in verse 21. Verse 15 will start with he or him, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. All of the focus now is shifting away from us, and all of it is going to shine. Paul is just grabbing us and saying, look, 
Look at this glory. I'm going to show you some glory of this beloved son and of the kingdom that is going to be mind-boggling, and we'll begin to dip into that next week. Make sure you're here. But here's the beginning of that, and that is that the son has provided redemption. And then that is explained. So redemption is the delivering, the transferring, but in that process, there's an additional working that is mighty and glorious, and that is the forgiveness of sins. To have all, all, every one of our transgressions against God, every one of our offenses against him, all of our sins, billions upon billions of them, all of our disobedience against God, struck from our record, washed away, removed, sent away is another biblical term. None of it ever held against us in any way. It's a beautiful description in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 13 and 14. Let me get to the right book. This is why I type them in my notes normally. He canceled, verse 14, explaining the end of verse 13, forgiven of all our trespasses, canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands that, that screamed we had to be condemned to hell. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that a graphic word picture? He disarmed the ruler's authorities, everybody that was trying to condemn us of our sin. He put them all to open shame by triumphing over all of them and nailing it all to the cross. Such a truth, so familiar to us that we become so dulled to its glory. So anything and everything you can read about God's forgiveness that is true, absorb and take in. Here's just one from a Puritan collection of prayer, of Puritan prayers, prayers by Puritans called the Valley of Vision. And they didn't, they didn't put any names in this, in any of these poems. They just wrote these expressions. But here's one about forgiveness called Calvary's Anthem. Heavenly Father, thou hast led me singing to the cross where I fling down all my burdens and see them vanish, where my mountains of guilt are leveled to a plain, where my sins disappear. Though they're the greatest that exist and are more in number than the grains of fine sand. For there is power in the blood of Calvary to destroy sins more than can be counted even by one from the choir of heaven. Thou hast given me a hillside spring that washes clear and white, and I go as a sinner to its waters, bathing without hindrance in its crystal streams. At the cross there is free forgiveness for poor and meek ones and ample blessings that last forever. The blood of the Lamb is like a great river of infinite grace with never any diminishing of its fullness as thirsty ones without number drink of it. O Lord, Forever will thy free forgiveness live that was gained on the mount of blood in the midst of a world of pain. It is the subject for praise in every place, a song on earth, an anthem in heaven, its love and virtue knowing no end. It is one of the most beautiful and precious promises and workings of God in our salvation. Many verses on forgiveness. Let me just highlight three as reminders from Ephesians chapter 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to, and what Paul adds here in Ephesians 1 is, that it's the riches of his grace which are lavished upon us. Hebrews 9.2 just reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So though it's not enumerated at this point, you'll see the blood of the cross in verse 21 of Colossians 1. But it's here implied that it's only Christ's blood from the cross applied to a sinner's sin through faith that is the only means by which God can or will forgive any sin. It doesn't matter how good you've been. It doesn't matter how many good things you think you've done and how good of a person you think you are. You, we, every one of us, every human being has a massive sin problem and it will not simply go away unless you confess it before God, repent of it, believing with all your heart and faith in his beloved son. All right, conclusion in two-ish minutes or ten. Four brief thoughts. Okay, I'm going to skip that first thought, I think. Yes, for now. There's cool stuff to show you, uh, but maybe another time or maybe in the email. So let me start with this. For those of us who have experienced what verses 12 to 14 describe, are you joyfully giving thanks to God over and over and over for these specific works of salvation? Let these words of Christ dwell in you and deepen your gratitude and your awe at what your salvation entails. Go to the next slide if you would. Actually, I don't think... Yes, thank you. Nope, go to the next one. Sorry. My bad. Here we are. Let's not just lump these phenomenal works of God in our salvation just into the words, I got saved. Let's hold up the treasure of each of these. May your mind continue to dwell on these and think about the incredible aspects of each and every one, that they would empower you to live and that we would teach and admonish each other with these. And a brief word to those of you who can't say with a confidence that this is a reality in your own life. Don't you long for redemption? Don't you want to be freed from the bondage that sin puts all of us in? Jesus died and rose and reigns expressly to free us out of the domain of darkness and move us into the kingdom of light of his beloved son. And God offers that redemption to you right now, right where you are sitting. If you will repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart, confessing him as your Lord and Savior. Second question for you, don't you desire to be delivered from the domain of darkness and all of its misery and anger? anger? Don't you find that it's lacking so much of what your heart really longs for and hopes for, God is willing now to transfer you out of that and deliver you from it if you will trust in his son. Don't you desire to come into a kingdom that's filled with love, to have a king that absolutely loves you and lavishes you with love and where everyone else loves as well? Aren't you tired of the hate? Aren't you tired of trying to run your own kingdom? Hear the words of Jesus. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And finally, can you picture how unbelievably fantastic the inheritance awaiting us in heaven will be? We'd love to have you, even today, put your trust and faith in Christ, repent of your sin in order to follow after him, and join us in enjoying these incredible blessings. Two final quotes that just tie together really the prayer of the last three Sundays. First of all, from John Piper, our thankful, joyful, patient endurance depends on the greatness of, number one, the redemption of Christ, and number two, the greatness of the reign of Christ. And then Tony Reinke, taking it all the way back to walking worthy, Jesus calls us to live in the dignity of royalty, children of the light, I would say saints of the light as well, so the king's defeated enemies and his insurrectionists will see in us the supreme and undeniable worth of the king. The dignity of our behaviors, our attitudes, our words, and our works all speak to the worth of the king. And that, in the end, is the whole point of our calling to live for King Jesus. Father, we are so amazed and so thankful for what you reveal to us has happened. We're, we're so unaware of what's going on in the spiritual realms. But these are phenomenal things, past, present, and future. Glories that we behold and we just bow and worship you for. And we ask, Lord, that you will make all of these a greater awareness in us, a greater reality of our everyday living, that we would think and dwell upon these and find a hope that presses us through all this junk until we come face to face with you and receive it all in full. We can't wait, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, we pray in your name. Amen.